0: south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 105, covering the week of January 22nd through January 26, 2018. Glad to be back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you of all the usual things Please like us on Facebook at Abbeville Institute. Follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville INST. If you want to find all those social media outlets, you can go to our homepage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you've got all our social media buttons. You also have our Amazon Smile button. If you want to contribute to the Abbeville Institute without having to do anything but shop at Amazon.com, you can subscribe to our Amazon Smile account. And every time you shop, you'll help the Abbeville Institute. Also, remember if you like this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It'll help get more traffic to the podcast. And if you're at our webpage, AbbevilleInstitute.org, you can leave us an email address and we will give you a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell. And you will get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday. Also, just want to remind you that we do have our next conference coming up February 24, 2018 in Charleston, South Carolina. Details are on our website. Time is running out to uh, get on that. So please, if you want to go to our conference, it is out there. It's going to be a wonderful time. Ben Cooter-Jones is our banquet speaker on Saturday night. So please go on out to abbevilleinstitute.org and check out our our information on our event. And, as always, the Abbeville Institute exists on your generous contributions alone, so if you do want to help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, please consider a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute for as little as $3 a month. If you're a student, or $5 a month if you're not a student, you can help us in our mission. So, go on out to abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, there's a button that says Support. Under that, you'll see a drop-down for memberships, and click on that, and you'll get right to our page on how to donate. Okay, all of that said, let's talk about this week. We had a lot of good information this week. I think uh, several good articles, um, and a couple of them go together. Um, And so it's important to understand, at least the first two go together very nicely, the first two articles of the week, Monday and Tuesday. uh, And then we get into a little bit of Southern history in the last bit of the week. So let's start with that first article of the week by Boyd Cathy, entitled Memphis, and the insult on our Western Christian inheritance. And this is something I've been talking about on this podcast now, it seems like for a couple of years, almost since the podcast started, and what the attack on Confederate monuments really means. <clears throat> and, of course, that is our theme for our conference coming up in February. But what these monuments mean, what they mean for the South and for American history and America in general. But as uh, Dr. Kathy points out in this particular piece, The Confederate monuments really are the low-hanging fruit. Uh, There's a bigger picture here, and that is if you take down the Confederate monuments, uh, that's just one step in a process of eradicating really traditional American history and also Western civilization in general. Because for years, the two things that Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson were known for, more than anything else, across the United States, whether it was if you're talking to somebody in uh, New York, or talking to someone in uh, the West, or even in the South. The two things those two individuals were known for is, is the fact that they were Christian gentlemen. And it was, it was that that defined why Americans considered Robert E. Lee and Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson to be heroes. And so, as Dr. Kathy says... Uh, And I'm going to quote this here. What those who split hairs and endorse taking down Confederate monuments while at the same time defending the Washington symbols fail to understand is that the defense of the monuments honoring Generals Lee and Jackson is part of a seamless defense of the entirety of our Western and Christian heritage and traditions. Defending symbols of the Confederacy and its soldiers and the defense of our other national symbols cannot be separated. This is true. And so what's happened, it's interesting, you know, you have people saying, well, we can take down Lee, but you got to stop at Washington or you have to stop at Jefferson or you have to stop at Madison. You can't take down anything honoring those people because that was something different. They were owned by all Americans. But it's amazing because after the war, and I've I've brought up this several times, E.L. Godkin, who was a extremely northern partisan during the war, I mean, he's, he's a libertarian, but very partisan to the north claimed Stonewall Jackson, after Jackson had died, claimed Stonewall Jackson, not just for the South, but also for the North. He said he was what America produced, not what the South produced, not what the North produced, but what America produced. And so people recognize these heroes, North and South, what they were, real Americans. Now, this is not what you hear nowadays you hear that Southerners weren't really American. And if you go and listen to my podcast, The Brian McClanahan Show, which you can also find on iTunes, or go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, what you find there, I just did a review of a book that I'll probably review for the Abbeville Institute at some point, but it's it was a book uh, written by a political science professor from Alaska. But he said that clearly Southerners were not Americans. The only Americans were Northerners and... Republican Party. That's it. And so this is what we're confronting. And so Dr. Cathy continues. This has been the fatal error of the neoconservatives, those pundits and scribblers, mostly in Washington or in New York, who now dominate the so-called, quote, conservative movement. It's think tanks and journals, Fox News, and to provide the, mean, the intellectual gruel for most establishment GOP thinking. Accepting implicitly the essential cultural Marxist narrative about race and racism, they are impelled by seceding logic to come to a similar conclusions at their supposed enemies over the farther left. Accepting the egalitarian myth that America was founded on the ideological principle, the unrealized idea of equality, they remain prisoners of their own logic. And so... This is, this is where Emmy Bradford and others looked at that issue of equality. And essentially what, what Dr. Cathy is alluding to here is not, uh, he's alluding to the Jaffaites, to the, to the Straussian neoconservatives. Uh, if you look at one strain of American conservatism, that, that would be the Harry Jaffa group out of Claremont in California that believed that the founding principle of America was that one line in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. But you have to understand what that meant to Jefferson. And of course, the Straussians don't really get into that. The Jefferson really didn't, uh, wasn't really coming up with anything new there. In his own words, he said he wasn't coming up with anything new. But that wasn't the most important part of the Declaration. And of course, that idea of equality and what that actually meant at the time has been distorted by Americans over generations. So uh, when you embrace that, you have to understand it's not equality of condition. But uh, equality under the law, and that's important because we don't even believe in that principle anymore. Equality under the law, what does that mean? Not when uh, certain groups or people can get things that would make it to where they're not equal under the law. So now others would say, of course, on the left, well, yeah, but some group has had privilege for their entire life, and now we're just equalizing that. I've heard that many times. But that's not necessarily true. So, when you look at the this, this situation, again, Lee and Jackson, all these Confederate monuments represented something else. They represent America. They represent the founding principles. They represent independence, which really is the core of the Declaration of Independence. It is a declaration of, quote, independence. It's secession. And the last paragraph of the Declaration is the most important part. Cathy concludes that a defense of monuments to General Lee is, in fact, a defense of Western Christian tradition. Not to understand that is to seriously fail to comprehend what our Western Christian tradition is all about, and only enables our fierce and frenzied enemies who seek in their darkest designs to destroy it and us. And some will openly say this. "That, Yeah, I mean, sure, we, we want to take down... Beauregard and Davis and Lee and Jackson, but we also want to take down Washington and Jefferson and Madison because the idea would be that American history didn't start until really the 1970s. It is a French-style revolution starting at year zero or year one. And so you have to eradicate anything that would be traditionally American. Now, as... uh, Dr. Cathy points out the SCV is trying to do things to stop this situation. There is legislation in several southern states to try to block some of these. Of course, what happened in Memphis is they broke the law, essentially, to get these monuments taken down without really saying they broke the law. But it's clear they were doing things that were extra legal. And so there is a legal attack here that the SCV is trying to approach in this situation. But more importantly, the longer war is you have to change minds. And that's why the Abbeville Institute exists, and that's why we're here, because the important part is to make people understand, look, these things, these statues, these symbols, they represent something that's uniquely American. And to not to fail to understand that is to fail to understand American history. And that said, the, the piece, the following piece on Tuesday, the book review of Paul Graham's Confederaphobia, which is a, just a fun little book by Ryan Walters, gets into this. And so uh, we've talked about the. Uh, Paul Graham actually wrote a piece for the Abbeville Institute entitled Confederaphobia, and it was one of our best viewed pieces. And so he turned it into a much larger book. And Graham defines confederaphobia as, quote, an irrational and pathological hatred and fear of all things Confederate. And so this is, when you look at phobias, it is an irrational, as he says, an irrational dislike of something. Something that doesn't really, that wouldn't hurt you on its own. The chances of it ever hurting you are slim to none, but yet you have a fear of it. And so you get, as Graham says, the intolerant, hateful, self-righteous, and smug opponent of anything confederate. So this is the issue, um, and some things have happened in the last couple of years that have really set the stage for uh, these type of actions, taking down monuments and symbols and other things, and we know them all, and we don't have to get into detail on what's happened. But certainly it's, been a, it's cracked the door, and so the opponents of these things just pushed it open, and now it's a flood. Now, things have subsided a little bit. Now, we know Memphis just happened very shortly, or very recently, a short time ago. But things have subsided, maybe only for a short time. Usually these things take place in the spring and the summer where people are out and they're looking at monuments, they're walking around, of course. Uh, in the wintertime, people kind of get, get inside. That's the way history works. You know, if you look at history in general, some of the greatest events take place in the summer because people are out and about. But Graham also goes after the Confederaphobes. Uh, To better understand their thought processes, Ryan Walters says. He says, these people are, he writes, these are people, he writes, that do not view their own thoughts, actions, and or behavior as being abnormal. They're not crazy. Everyone who disagrees with them are. He likens their mental condition to other phobias like arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. But there's one key difference. Those who suffer from a fear of spiders don't blame the spiders and seek to exterminate them. There is no anti-spider movement across the country. Confederaphobes, on the other hand, blame not themselves for their condition, but the South and Southern symbols. The problem is not with them, you see, but with someone else. And they're conditioned to be this way largely through the public education, which has largely become anti-South in the last 50 years. He also asked the question, you know, why is it that uh, outsiders really determine what Confederate symbols mean? Why is it not Southerners themselves? Now, of course, there are Southerners who would say these symbols... Need to come down. This is a southern question, but a lot of times outsiders are putting pressure on southern areas to discuss these issues. It's not just southerners themselves. And, of course, as Ryan Walter says, or as Graham writes in the book, southerners are under no obligation to participate in our own destruction or sit quietly while the memory of our kith and kin are slandered and insulted. And that's, again, what we're doing here. So, these two pieces work nicely together. This Book Review of Confederaphobia, which you get for under 10 bucks on Amazon. It's a great little book. And, of course, Boyd Cathy's piece. And then we transition for the week into a couple of historical pieces. One that actually, again, works with this is The Lies and Hypocrisy of the Civil War. It's written by uh, Jacob Hornberger, who is actually a libertarian. He's... Um, He's the president of Future of Freedom Foundation. a founder of that as well. And essentially what he says in this particular piece is something we've been saying a long time. He says, look, um, he asks, as a libertarian, I question why government should erect statues in the first place to anyone. That's not, not simply a legitimate role of government. More, why should people be taxed to fund a statue of someone whose beliefs or behavior they dislike or oppose? I mean, this is a... This is a question that libertarians have asked, and of course he says private entities can do this. But the problem, he says, is the lies and the hypocrisy of the entire thing. He says this, the most popular lie is the one that says Abraham Lincoln waged the war to free the slaves. That's just a plain lie. Quote, ending slavery was the result at the end of the war, but it was clearly not Lincoln's goal at the beginning of the war. And so he says, look, the war was to stop secession. And even if you took slavery out of it and the South still seceded, the war would still be about secession and stopping secession. That's what Lincoln said it was about. He questions whether this war really was treason. He said, there's no way you can call it treason because people thought secession at the time, many people thought secession was perfectly legal. And so, uh, Lincoln, uh, he says that uh, many supporters of the Civil War have fled from the truth. They have fled from the truth and convinced themselves the Civil War was initiated principally to end slavery and only secondarily to suppress secession. He says that's the problem. He says, during the statute controversy, people have accused the secessionists of being traitors. They say that it was treason for Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, and others to secede from the Union. But he questions, isn't treason a legal concept? If the Constitution permitted secession, which many people believe, then how could it be treasonous to secede? Indeed, at the end of the war, federal officials took Davis into custody and threatened to prosecute him for treason. Deciding that discretion was the better part of valor, however, they dropped their prosecution. One reason might have been that they didn't want to risk a Supreme Court ruling on the matter. Possibly. But there was also the reconciliationist end of that, too. Many northerners are grown tired of Reconstruction. They were tired of the whole process. And they didn't want, they wanted to heal the wounds of the war. And Jefferson Davis became that symbol. And, of course, he brings up the idea that the American War for Independence was just that. It wasn't a revolution. So he questions why, can, why people can celebrate Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Henry, but not Lee and Davis and Jackson. He says, of course, it matters who wins and loses, but the point is, we can't call Lee a traitor if we don't call George Washington a traitor. We can't say the war in 1861 was about slavery if we can't say the war in 1776 was about slavery, because that was, we've talked about on this podcast, that was said at the time, it's about slavery. He also brings up the fact that most people in the United States in the antebellum period saw the nation as a collect quote, a collection of sovereign and independent entities, i.e. states, that had simply confederated together to facilitate matters of common interest. He also says in the process, the states understood they were not surrendering their separate independent and sovereign status. This is true. The union that we've got because of the Constitution, is the same union we had under the Articles of Confederation. It's just the union, the central government under the union with the Constitution, is a little stronger, but it's still the same union. That's an important point to understand. And so he says, the war... He, asks, he actually actually asked a very interesting question. He said, look, if the war was simply about slavery rather than secession. Why couldn't the United States have invaded the South, freed the slaves, and then returned home? He says the United States does this kind of stuff all the time. They could have done that and then um, left the South alone. And, of course, he says that's because the war was about secession, not slavery. He also says the North could have acceded to secession and then declared itself to be a sanctuary for runaway slaves, which it didn't do. And, of course, as we know, during Reconstruction, the effort of the Republican Party was to bottle former slaves up in the South. Why? Because they wanted to ensure they'd vote Republican. And that way they could win those states over and over again. This is the same situation that's happening today with massive immigration. It's all about votes and political power. So, he brings up war crimes and other things we've talked about on this podcast. And we'll talk about war crimes, actually, in the last piece. He says, Hornberger says, I would be remiss if I failed to mention the extreme dictatorial actions committed by Lincoln, his arrest of the Maryland legislature, his jailing of critical journalists, his suspension of habeas corpus, his embrace of conscription, his enactment of legal tender laws. They were all illegal under our form of constitutional government. They are also characteristic of some of the most brutal dictatorships in history. He concludes by saying Lincoln ended up winning and slavery was ended, which was the one good thing that came out of the war. No one would deny that. But it's not necessary to honor war criminals and white separatists simply because they won, especially when ending slavery wasn't the reason they initiated the Civil War. Indeed, does winning mean that lies and hypocrisy have to be a major legacy of the Civil War? And so that's a good question. Of course, one of the things we try to do here is cast shade on Abraham Lincoln. Because the Lincoln myth is one of the most important myths in American history. And so that brings us to our Friday piece. I'll talk about the Thursday piece in a second. but the Friday piece was entitled uh, "Christian Persecution in Missouri." It was written by Lewis Lieberman and, and um, or Lieberman. And um, this this piece is interesting, and on social media there was some discussion about how the piece, was hypocritical in of itself because it didn't bring up persecution of Catholics or Mormons in Missouri. Um, of course, Catholics are Christians, and so it, you know, the, the fact is, and the point of the piece is not to get into denominational debates, but to talk about how the, the post-war period, the postbellum period, even during the war, there was a substantial effort made by the War Department under Secretary of War Stanton, to go after churches and persecute Christians because they weren't being pro-union enough, to replace pro-Southern ministers with pro-union ministers simply because they didn't offer a prayer to the president or they didn't uh, say the right things about the union victory or they weren't hoping for union victory, these type of things. So, you can search far and wide in the Constitution for the authority for the general government to do this. But, of course, you're never going to find it. But this is one of those things where Lincoln, as Hornberger says, was expanding war powers unconstitutionally. And, of course, uh, churches are going to be persecuted for that as well. And this the book he talks about is um, a book entitled Martyrdom in Missouri, a History of the Religious prescription, the seizure of churches, and the persecution of ministers of the gospel in the state of Missouri during the late Civil War and under the test oath of the new Constitution. And so he gives, uh, Lieberman gives several, uh, Lieberman gives several uh, examples of these things in this particular piece. And of course, these type of books are often Overlooked. I mean, most people don't even know these things exist. One of my most favorite uh, these you know, kind of during the war and post-bellum books on Lincoln or Republican atrocities uh, is one entitled The Military Interference Report, and it's uh, a little book published by the state of Delaware that talks about the troops at the polls in Delaware. It was a long uh it's it's a short little book, but for several days the legislature interviewed people that were involved in troops being sent to the polling places in Delaware, and it gets into uh, the details of what happened and why these troops were there. Were they necessary? And certainly, it was a partisan effort to ensure that Republicans would win the election. There's no other way to look at it. And of course, there was a book written by Jonathan White that gets into this idea that. You've got these uh, troops, going, Republican uh, troops going to the polls and they're being pushed into areas where they know they can help swing the election. But also at the same time, you have voter suppression by the army. Those who were Democrat, either didn't vote or were intimidated not to vote. Um, so there's there's a in, in white says, look, the, the numbers are skewed. We look at that and say, yeah, the Union Army completely supported the, the Republican. Just look how they voted. Well, that's because a lot of people didn't vote. And so it's important to know this It's there. The evidence is there. You just have to know how to look at it. So this particular piece fits in nicely with the lies and hypocrisy, the fact that we have a situation in our understanding of the war that's based on lies, that's based on half-truths, that doesn't show the complete picture, the side of the... And thankfully, now, there is a growing uh, school of scholarship that's looking at the north, because I think that's really where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, to understand the war effort and what was going on. Um, I wrote my dissertation on a topic like that, and, uh, you know, long, gosh, seems like a long time ago now. Um, and at the time when I wrote it, I, kn- I didn't think that um, it was really going to be well-received, and so I didn't do anything with it. But now there's a, a larger amount of material coming out. It's talking about these uh, Lincoln opponents uh, this this more complex picture of the north, even people who aren't necessarily sympathetic with the south, but they're looking at the north and saying, gosh, you know, this this wasn't this noble group of people. There are some real problems here in the north and they should be held accountable for these things. Um, you know, you have leftist attorneys and others standing up and saying, you know, Lincoln was violating the Constitution. Uh, we can't look. War produced a situation where Lincoln was going beyond his constituted authority, and we shouldn't give him a free pass for that. Uh, civil liberties were being abused in the North, and those are things that need to be addressed. We need to understand those things because if we don't, you can run into a situation where you can have these type of things happen again. And essentially, Lincoln helped create the idea of presidential war powers, unconstitutional presidential war powers. He he said it. Well. I can just do these things because it's there to best subdue the enemy, but what does that mean? Where does that stop? So that's a real question. And that when I was when I wrote my book, nine presidents who screwed up America, that was everyone focused on Lincoln because, of course, he's in the he's in the book, and so I was surprised how many people were actually sympathetic to that. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to you got to attack Lincoln for these things too. I mean, you can't give him a free pass. Uh, finally. Uh, We have a piece for, uh, on Thursday, The Midnight Ride That Saved Jefferson and Henry, written by Joe Wolverton. And it talks of Jack Jewett. And it's this idea that, you know, Paul Revere, if you go and you take an American, again, this is north over south. If you take an American history course, the only person you're going to get is Paul Revere. This is the only guy that had a midnight ride. Of course, at the time, as David Hackett Fisher pointed out, there were probably about 30 riders. But Revere was the only one that, really anybody paid attention to, and that's because of a poem. But his ride was far less impressive than that of Jack Jewett, who was saving Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry. In fact, Jefferson only got out of his house by the skin of his teeth. He was in his lawn, on his lawn, while the British were ransacking his house. And so... This is important to understand. That idea of north over south, northern history, northern view, it dominates. doesn't matter what part of American history you're talking about. When the war was over, northerners started writing the history. And, of course, northern people, northern patriots. This is why you have the New England patriots. Like, there were no patriots in the south, for example, in popular culture. They just didn't exist. Well, we know that... The war wouldn't have been won without the Southern Theater, without Southerner George Washington. And so Jack Jewett saving Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson in 1781 was perhaps more important than saving Sam Adams and John Hancock with Paul Revere. And the trip that he had to take. Forty miles of unforgiving forests in the darkest hours of the night, as one newspaper said, had never been equaled in history. Revere covered fewer than 20 miles on a well-traveled public road on a night blessed with a bright moon. But not many people know about Jack Jewett. And I think, again, this is, shows the bias that we have in American history, in American culture, in American society when it comes to things of this nature. So I hope you enjoyed the pieces of the week. I, I meant to uh, say at the beginning of the podcast a couple of mea culpas. Last podcast, I mentioned Gene Kaiser's name, and I mispronounce it. I mispronounce it, Kizer, and I don't know what I was thinking, but it's Gene Kaiser. And we have another book review in a few weeks. We'll have another one on one of his books. So it's Gene Kaiser, so I apologize for that. The other thing I said incorrectly was that Emmy Bradford, this is maybe two podcasts ago, Emmy Bradford helped found the St. George Tucker Society, and in fact, that was Eugene Genovese. Bradford was part of it for a very brief amount of time before he died. Uh, but it was not Bradford, it was Genovese. Still, the point was that we they would have a real scholarly association dedicated to looking at all aspects of the South, and it just fell apart. So, to me, a I apologize for the mistakes. I apologize to Mr. Ki- uh, Mr. Kaiser for saying his name wrong. And um, that's. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. But anyways, hope you enjoyed uh, this week in review at the Abbeyville Institute. Until next time, good day.